I'm not sure how I realized that I did not know where my daughter Alice was, but it probably had something to do with how quiet our home was. <laughs> Suspecting that my then three-year-old had perhaps found my stash of chocolate and was silently enjoying her plunder, I looked in her bedroom and then in mine, empty. I checked the bathroom, the galley kitchen, the living room, dining room combination, no Alice. It was a very tiny apartment, and so there, there really weren't very many places she could be. But I checked the closet, and then I checked all the rooms again, calling her name with a slowly mounting level of concern. I did a third lap, this time with Jesse, my husband, looking also. No, Alice. It wasn't like her to leave the apartment without us. We lived on a really busy corner and we only went out together. Still, she was three and anything was possible. So I checked on the balcony, I looked on the patio on the far side of our big building, I looked down by the garages, right by the street. I was growing more frantic, wondering how we could have lost our little girl without having gone anywhere at all. I ran next door to the church where I worked at the time. I ran through the hall of offices asking folks if they'd seen her. I ran upstairs into the sanctuary and looked under all the pews. I ran out into the courtyard where the preschoolers were playing. Had they seen my daughter? Had anyone seen my daughter? No, and no, and no. I ran back across the parking lot, bounded up the rickety wooden stairs, and reached for my phone. I couldn't quite believe that this was happening, and yet surely it was time to call the police and file a missing children, missing child report. It is this kind of frantic, unrelenting love that Jesus tries to call to mind this morning, but I'm not sure how effective it is for his audience. They have challenged him. They're offended by the questionable company that he keeps, maybe worried that it might make them look bad if this rabbi continues sitting down to eat with such salty characters. And so he tells them a parable. It can be tempting to receive parables as instructions on how we should live. If only it were that simple. But parables aren't fables. They don't carry one simple moral for us. Instead, they're tricky stories designed to provoke, to jar us out of our complacency, to make us Look at the world from a new angle, and then another, and another, until slowly we, be, we begin to see as God sees. 
And so Jesus tells this parable and asks the gathered religious leaders, which one of you would not leave your 99 sheep to go look for the one lost sheep? What do you all think? Honestly, one sheep has gone missing under your watch. The herd is your responsibility. It's also your livelihood. And at the moment, these two concerns are at odds. It would be nice to find that one sheep, to care for it well, to bring it home, but leaving the 99? That just seems foolish. My shepherd, friend, remember that you are in the wilderness. It is dangerous. There are predators lurking. The terrain is difficult to cross over as a human and yet perfect for a herd to scatter all across that land. If you leave the 99, won't you just lose more sheep? So, Jesus, which one of us wouldn't leave the 99? Well, truth be told, I think most of us would not. We'd cut our losses and figure it'll all work out in the end. That one lost sheep is lamentable, but also expendable. This is just reality. Jesus knows this. And so offers this parable to push us to begin encountering the world as God does. Because God's math is different. The way that God engages value and risk is different. The religious leaders are arguing that some folks don't deserve Jesus' attention. They are too crooked, too broken, too suspect. And I wonder if beneath their disdain for these so-called sinners and their tax-collecting friends, I wonder if the religious leaders fear that if they mess up, they may lose a place at the table also. That if they step off this carefully prescribed path of faith, they will be lost and no one will come to find them. Do any of them choke up a little as Jesus teaches? Too often this parable has been said to be about people who are really far away from the faith, folks who maybe have never heard this good news at all. But he's talking about the lost who are already within the herd. Maybe they're tax collectors and maybe they're scribes but they're lost on the inside. The shepherd loses one who is already his. The woman loses a coin that is already hers. No matter where we are, we get lost. Practices that once held meaning become rote. Questions that have never bothered us before ring in our ears. Change interrupts what has always worked well enough. Suddenly, we find ourselves turned around, unsure which way to step. Jesus gets that. 
He understands that we will lose our way, which is precisely why he tells this parable. There are plenty of ways to interpret it, as there always are with a parable. It's not an allegory. One that feels particularly important is in hearing about God's extravagant love for all of us, most especially when we're lost. Who wouldn't go to great lengths to find that one bewildered sheep? Well, most of us. But God will, and God does. This is the story of God relentlessly searching us out, climbing steep hills and pushing through the maw of dense, wild brambles, turning the whole house into a tornado in the search, looking tirelessly until she finds us. I had just started to dial 911 to report my missing child, but as I crashed back into our apartment, Jesse stopped me. He had found Alice. She had been hiding under a tangled pile of blankets on our bed the whole time, staying perfectly still, As it turns out, she had been playing a very competitive round of hide-and-go-seek. She had just neglected to tell us as much. My heart rushed as I laughed and cried and held onto her, probably too tightly and for too long. At three years old, I doubt Alice thought much about what had happened. After all, most of her experience had been the delight of a really, really good hiding place, and then some amusement at how strangely thrilled her parents were to find her. But the experience stuck with me. I already knew what it was to lose a child, and yet here I was learning again how overwhelming the love is that surrounds life especially when it seems to hang by a thread. Those few minutes of of being thrown into the all-out sprint of a search changed me. It pulled me out beyond my more guarded human ways. It gave me a glimpse of how God operates. At the end of these two scenes of the parable, Jesus describes the joy that comes in heaven when one of these lost ones is found and repents. When we hear these words, I suspect that many of our minds jump to some version of crawling on our knees and groveling our confession. But he does not disparage that one lost sheep or the lost coin. And that punishing understanding of penitence is not what Jesus is describing. The word that he uses here as repentance is metanoia in the Greek. Meta, to change, and noia, the mind. The the rejoicing, this grand celebration, it comes when we are found and when in response we change our mind change our perspective, our way of being. It is vulnerable and risky and beautiful. 
The finding and the being found changes our hearts, both softening them and and also making them pump a little quicker. It changes our connection, forging a new layer of relationship, newly understanding what it was to be separated and fearfully longing, even if only for a little while. And all this changes the seeker, the one who finds. God rejoices. God celebrates gathering the whole host of heaven together for the party when that singular one is found. Which is to say, God too is transformed and brought to joy. This repentance, this changing our minds, our perspectives, our ways of being, it is a joint venture. We're in it together, tethered to God, even even when it seems like we are still so terribly far off. This holy change comes as God looks for us without tiring, for as long as it takes, until together we can rejoice in our reunion.